I'd like to open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 will be there in just a moment. As you're turning there, I'll add my welcome to you all. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate our visitors being among us today. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us on this first day of the week. It's a beautiful day. And um, we're so blessed and, and honored to be able to come before our God and our Creator and to worship Him the way He has prescribed. Thank you all so much for being here. Thankful to the men who have led our service up to this point. Appreciate the good thoughts around the table and the good prayers and the good singing. It's encouragement to be able to come together and to worship our God. I wanted to talk this morning um, about the benefits and the challenges of a small congregation. We here are a small congregation, and so I think that uh, we'll recognize the, the, both the benefits and the challenges that I'll point out uh, this morning. This, uh, this sermon was shared with me by our brother, uh, Charles Andrews, who preaches down in Osprey. Um, he shared this sermon with me, and I thought it would be a, a beneficial sermon to bring uh, for the brethren here. And so I encourage you to follow along and look in the scriptures that we'll point out and see um, where indeed we benefit from our small number and where indeed we have challenges because we are small in number. I want to start here in Acts chapter 15, actually just as a little bit of a lead up. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, there's a council there at Jerusalem and there were some certain things that they needed to address. Some of the Judaizing teachers were trying to uh, bind some things onto the disciples of Christ that, that weren't to be bound. And so the, the apostles came together and some disciples and they decided to, to write a letter and to distribute that letter amongst the churches and tell them a few things about uh, things sacrificed to idols and, and blood and a few of those things that needed to be addressed. And so they went out and, and were, were um, spreading these things and telling the, amongst the churches and we get to verse 36 of Acts chapter 15, and we see where Paul is set down on his second missionary journey. And it says there in verse 36 of Acts chapter 15, And after these days, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit to the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So this is the second time Paul is going on a missionary journey. And he, he tells Barnabas he wants to go back to those places where he went on this first missionary journey. And he wants to strengthen those churches. He wants to strengthen the people there um, and, and encourage them through this letter that they have and, and just being with them and encouraging them. So we come to chapter 16 and beginning in verse 1. And it says, And they came to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him before the Jews uh, who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Verse 4, Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for, to observe. And notice verse 5, So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So part of Paul's mission as he's going on this missionary journey, was to strengthen the churches, to help them to grow in their faith, because that's an important part and an important dynamic of each and every congregation is that they're growing. 
being strengthened in the faith and increasing in number daily. This is what God's plan is for the kingdom, is that it is ever-expanding. That's what his wish is for his children. He wants more and more children. And so we understand that this is uh, part of our charge as Christians is to strengthen one another. And we do that through various ways. But it's important to understand that we need to be strengthened. We need to be encouraged. and We need to grow. Not only in number, but in our faith. So with that in mind, let's talk about um, some things and some, some churches in the New Testament that we see. We'll start with understanding um, a few things about them. First, let's understand that um, some churches we read about in the New Testament were, in the New Testament were very large. In the church in Jerusalem, there on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 added to the church on that one day. That's pretty big from <laughs> the number we have here, isn't it? That's, a, that's exponential, I think. Um, but even that, then, a short time later, and get over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, we see that there was uh, 5,000 more were added. So we have 8,000 plus there just in Jerusalem. That's a very large congregation, isn't it? In fact, I don't really know how they manage that. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments here, about some problems that came along with that. That's a very large church. And we see the opposite in the New Testament also. We see some very small churches, some so small that they actually met in people's houses. We have a few examples of that in Romans chapter 16. Um, Paul writes here to greet uh, Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, whom my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. So here we have an example of a church that's meeting in someone's house, and we have other examples. In Colossians 4 and verse 15, there it's spoken of, uh, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. We also have a, another example in Philemon, verse 2. And to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church is in your house. So we have extremes here. We have a church of 8,000 in Jerusalem, and then we have several churches that are just meeting in, in people's homes. What does that tell us? It tells us that the size of the church doesn't determine its, determine its faithfulness or its strength. In Colossians 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. That's what's important. The numbers aren't important other than with the fact that we want to spread the borders of the kingdom and we want everyone to be able to come in and hear the word of God. And we want to go out from this place and tell them the word of God. So we want those borders to be ever expanding, but the actual numbers don't matter as far as the individual church. It could be a small church, it can be a large church, it can be a medium church, somewhere in between. What's important is the faith that we have in Christ Jesus and the love that we have for one another. That's what's important. Let's talk with this in mind about some benefits of a small church. One we can understand here is that with a small church, we have a very strong sense of family, don't we? 
comes from a lot of things, understanding that we know each other pretty well. You know, it's hard to fall through the cracks in a small congregation. We know each other pretty well. We see each other every time we come here and outside of here. we and involved in each other's lives. Look over in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is what the Lord has always wanted. He's wanted an intimate, close relationship with his children. He's wanted that from the very beginning, even with the children of Israel. He wanted that close relationship with them. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 28, it says, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Notice verse 29 beginning. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or family or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he should receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus is pointing out that you know, that we have earthly families, we have families by blood, the relationships, the kin that we have in this world, and those are important. But what's really important is our, is our, is our the kingdom in which we live, our spiritual family. That's what's important. Jesus is saying that if we are willing to leave all that behind, then we'll have a hundred times the blessings in our spiritual family with fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. That's the kind of family that Jesus wants us to have. We are the family of God on earth. A spiritual family made up of spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And to show you this, we see passages like 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul has given instructions to the young evangelist Timothy. And he says there in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 5, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as what? As a father. To the younger men as brothers, to the older as mothers, and to the younger women as sisters in all purity. See that family relationship there? You know, we have men that are older than us. We need to treat them like fathers. We have men that are the same age as us and younger. We need to treat them like brothers. The older women we treat as mothers, and the, the, the women that are our age and younger, we treat them as sisters. And in such, we have a family. We have a family in the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, Paul writes here, In case I'm delayed, I write so you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. He describes the church here in this, in this term as the household of God. He also talks about it being the, um, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. But that intimate relationship is described as, as that household. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. So being a small church... We have a small family, don't we? We know each other pretty well. That's one of the benefits of being a small church is we do have that strong sense of family because we know each other so well. Closely related to that is the, is the fact that being a small group and, and being few of us, there's less chance of us being neglected. You know, we have those who are battling with ongoing illnesses and things in their lives and we're able to attend to them. Because we're small in number, so we know them. In Acts chapter 6 there, um, let's turn over there. 
I mentioned this in passing. Um, Acts chapter 6. You know, they had a problem. Um, here in Jerusalem, remember we talked about the, that big church that, that they had. They were, there was a problem, and some were being neglected. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So they had a problem, and there's those who were getting overlooked. Remember, as they were sharing their belongings and their food with one with another, as they did there, some were being overlooked. And so this is, we won't read verses 2 and 3 for the sake of time, but this is when they uh, chose seven men, appointed them essentially as deacons, uh, to serve these tables. And so the, the, the apostles could devote themselves to the spreading of the word. In a very large church, um, these were being neglected. And the solution was the apostles were to appoint these seven men, and they were going to serve tables. In smaller churches there's more opportunity to see the needs of others that are not neglected. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. In a small church, we can do that pretty easily, can't we? Because we can get around to everybody. Just, it's just a numbers game, so to speak. We can do that in a small congregation. Larger congregations, it's more difficult. It's not impossible. And please understand, this is not, um, none of this is intended to, um, to, to speak against a large congregation. Congregations can be as large as they want to be. And if they're faithful and loving one another and serving God, then that's, that's absolutely okay. Let's bear that in mind. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too may not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In a small congregation, that's easier to do. So we have the benefit. Let's, let's use that. Let's uh, capitalize on that and understand that we have that benefit of knowing each other pretty well. And then we can see to the needs that each of us have. Third in this is um, a benefit that we have a greater opportunity to grow. That might sound a little uh, antithetical, but it's true. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, uh, as Paul is instructing again the young Timothy, he says, The things which, I, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see how there's a progression of this? That the older men teach the younger men, and, and then they, they teach the younger men, and there's a progression. Uh, there's, an ever, there's an ever ongoing cycle about teaching. And that's important. It's important for us to grow in the faith, and to grow in our knowledge, and to be able to teach others what we have learned. And that's how the Word of God continues to spread. And it continues to go forth. So there's greater opportunity in a small group. In large um, congregation, congregations, think about uh, the opportunities. There's only so many things that we engage in uh, in a Sunday morning. So if you're in a, in a congregation of three or four hundred, it might be a, a while before that number comes around to you and you're able to, to, to stand and serve at the table or lead singing or, or whatever that might be. In a large congregation, that, that can be problematic. 
So a lot of, a lot of people don't get the chance to be involved in these things. Um, and as such, they don't have as many opportunities to grow. Because indeed, that is how we grow as men. To be able to lead the congregation, to be able to engage in the worship, teach Bible classes, give sermons every now and then. That's how it is that men can grow and can pass on the knowledge that they have. It's difficult to sustain personal growth when our opportunities are limited. Um, again, I'm not saying it's impossible. And I know big churches who manage this through several different ways, through having men's training classes outside of worship services, um, to having special singing services, to have special gatherings where, where men might give an uh, exhortation or a five-minute talk. There's all sorts of ways to manage that. But what's important is the personal growth of the men and women of a congregation. But in smaller churches, the opportunity uh, to be engaged in the work um, is much greater. Think about it. <laughs> Lots of times we have to pull double duty here, don't we, men, um, when we're low in number. Rather than thinking of that as a, as a burden um, or being discouraged by that, think of it as a benefit. Think of it as an opportunity to grow. Um, you may not lead singing very much, but there might come a time when you do lead singing. If you're the only man here, you might have to do, it, do everything. Don't think of that as a, as, as a discouragement, but think of it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to grow. There in Hebrews 5, the, what's mentioned there is um, that, op, that the Hebrew writer is saying, um, you should be on solid meat by now, but you need, you need someone to give you the, the milk of the word again. The, the, the stressing there is that we need to be growing. We need to grow out of that need for the milk and move on to solid food because that solid food is what we need to live on as more advanced um, Christians and more deeply rooted in our faith and understanding the Word of God better. We need to be growing. But look at those as opportunities and not as a discouragement. Along with this, um, these few, and there's many, many others we could talk about, but um, benefits of a small group. Let's talk about some challenges of a small group. Um, and again, there's lots out there, but we're, we're going to focus in on three. Um, first one is uh, what we've just been mentioning there, the danger of being discouraged. You know, um, when we're few in number, it's easy to be discouraged because we look around and say, well, where is everybody? 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 13. As for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, what's the, however many number of us, and just speaking of coming together, if there's 3 or 5 or 12 or 20, or we had 70-something here one Sunday not too long ago, whatever the number is, we need to make sure we're doing that, not growing weary in doing good. We come together no matter what. If we have, if we can, if we're able, if our physical bodies allow us to be here, we come together and we encourage one another. It can be challenging. And we can be discouraged by the few in number. But as we set out, we said from the beginning, the size of the congregation doesn't matter. It's doing the work of the Lord that's what's important. Um, too often, you know, being a small congregation, um, 
we can become discouraged because we can't do the work of a larger congregation. You know, a lot of larger congregations are able to support other preachers. I'm supported by a couple of congregations that help support me, and they can because they are larger than we are, and they have an abundance and can support other preachers in different areas. And I'm very grateful for that. And that's wonderful that churches are able to do that. And that's part of the, the ministry of the church. That's part of the work of the church is to spread the gospel. And I'm very thankful that larger groups can do that. But we shouldn't be discouraged because we can't do that. We still have work to do. And no matter what size of the church, the church, if it's functioning properly and doing as God has commanded, can fulfill its mission. Now, we lack elders here, and one day we hope to have elders, because then we can be a complete working body. But in the meantime, we still function as a church. We still come together on the first day of the week. We still give to those who are in need. We still spread the word in this congregation. It doesn't matter what size we are. We can do that, whether we're 12 or 1,200. We can do that. So let's not get discouraged about the fact that we maybe can't support other preachers or foreign mission work. We have work to do in this community, and we are well equipped to do what we need to do in this community. The Lord expects us to bear fruit with the abilities that we've been blessed with in this congregation. Like I said, it doesn't matter um, what size we are. The Lord expects us to bear fruit. In the parable of the talents, our Lord uh, teaches about um, this idea. In Matthew 25, verse 29, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. The lesson here is that do the best with what you have. Do the best with what God has blessed you with. And if we're doing that, then we're fulfilling the work of the church. We're doing what we should be doing. In Revelation, our Lord speaks to the seven churches in Asia. And to the church at Ephesus, he writes there, or he says there in Revelation 2, beginning of verse 2, I know your deeds uh, and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Anytime does he mention how big the church at Ephesus is? It doesn't matter. They're doing what needs to be done, standing for the truth, standing up against those who are teaching false doctrine. And they have perseverance. It doesn't matter what size they are. We have things to do no matter what size the congregation is. Similar to what we read earlier, um, Galatians 6 and verse 9, Paul has similar language here about not growing weary and doing good. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. In due time we will reap. What does that mean? It means that right now we're sowing. You look at the parable of the sower. What did he do? He went out sowing seed, right? That was his job. Paul talks about how he sowed, Apollos watered, but who is it that gives the increase? It's God that gives the increase. Our duty is to sow and to water. God is the one who provides the increase. And from verses like this, we understand that we can't grow weary in doing our work. But this is our work. This is what we do. 
Let's get on with it. I'm not growing weary. Another danger of a, a small congregation, and that is the danger of stagnation. The reference there in Revelation 3 is the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea had grown lukewarm, and their faith had become stagnant. They were neither hot nor cold. They had become stagnant. Any stagnant body of water starts to smell. We know that pretty, pretty well, don't we? From the events of uh, these recent months with the red tide, we know what stagnant water is like. Stagnant water will start to smell. If we become stagnant, we're going to have a problem. Just like the church in Laodicea. They were neither hot nor cold. Remember what Jesus said he was going to do with them? Some translations say spew. Some translations say vomit. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty vile, isn't it? That's a pretty tough description. But that's how Jesus felt about it. About that group that had grown lukewarm. They were satisfied in their station in life. In verse 17, they thought that they were rich and wealthy and had need of nothing. This is what they thought about themselves. What Jesus says is in reality is that they were the opposite. They were wretched. They were miserable. They were poor. They were blind and naked. Spiritually, they were those things. They thought that they were, you know, doing pretty well. But because they were lukewarm, because they were not serving God as he instructs us to serve him, Jesus says, you're deluding yourself. This comes down to the idea of complacency. Complacency means a feeling of quiet pleasure or security, often while unaware of some potential danger, defect, or the like. Self-satisfaction or smugness. We've seen that, haven't we? We've seen it in the world, for sure. Sadly, we see it among brethren sometimes. When you become complacent, when you become okay with just going along and the status quo, you're not growing. And that's one of the dangers a small congregation faces. If you think about the vast majority of small churches, when they become stagnant, well, you've probably seen this in your own, own life if you've been a Christian long enough. You see kind of the progression, the church that kind of slows down in what they're doing, then they become stagnant. Eventually what's going to happen to them? Most times they're going to wind up closing the doors. And if you think about it in this way, think about how many churches you've seen close their doors or dissolve versus the number of startup churches you've seen in your life. That's a sobering thing to think about. And that all because comes about because we're just okay with the status quo. We need to be very careful about that. A third thing that we can consider is a challenge to the church that they can come to follow after a man and not after God. In 3 John there, um, verses 9 and 10, we read about Diotrephes. Um, John here writing, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. I had a lesson not too long ago about the three men of Third John. There's Gaius and there's Diotrephes and there's Demetrius. We looked at those three men. This, this guy, Diotrephes, 
um, thought a lot of himself, didn't he? Kind of had the uh, my way or the highway mentality. It says there at the end, either he forbids those who desire to do so or puts them out of the church. He took it upon himself to, to, to regulate the ongoing of the church. We know that's not right. Small churches, when they don't have elders, this can be a problem. When a man starts to elevate himself above the rest, or a group of men, that's contrary to the pattern that we see in the church of the elders being the shepherds of the flock. That's something that's very dangerous. So we don't put our faith in men, even in elders. Now, we respect them and give them the due honor that Scripture tells us to do. But when it comes down to it, we have to follow after God. We don't follow after men. We give God the attention. We give God the reverence that he deserves, not men. A couple of examples about, if you think about the Apostle Paul and think about, boy, you know, I... I sure could follow after that guy. Think about his, what he did and the things he endured and his writings and, and his teaching. But, you know, Paul really didn't have uh, that commanding presence uh, of some great orator. Um, we know that from passages like 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. It says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, when I, you know, I, I didn't come to you with the flowery language, with the smooth talk, uh, as a great orator. He goes on in verse 2 to say, I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message that's got to come forward. Not how great the oratory skills of the preacher are, because if that were the case, I might be out of a job. I'm not the greatest orator in the world, you know. But I desire to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as long as I'm doing that effectively, then that's my charge. And that's what I need to be doing. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, he says, Paul is, is saying about what others are saying about him. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Paul writes well, but if you ever met him, wouldn't be that impressed. What's important here? What's important is not following after Paul as a man, but following after God. Making sure that we are in compliance with what God says and not following after a cult of personality in this world. And even Paul was humble enough to recognize that you're not following after me. I planted Apollos watered, God provides the increase. God knew, uh, Paul knew his station in life and knew what God wanted him to do. Even our Lord, uh, Devin last week, was it last week, from, uh, Isaiah 53, we, we read about as we gathered around the table. The description of uh, the suffering servant there in Isaiah 53, the, the prophecy about the coming Messiah. Even Jesus it says here in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He, was, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. We talked about this in our, our Bible class this morning. There wasn't anything about Jesus in his physical appearance that attracted men to him, attracted people to him. It was what he was teaching and preaching. 
Even Jesus is not, you know, discounted from this. It's the message that Jesus was bringing. That's what was important. And when we think about the earthly king, um, you know, Jesus brought about a kingdom that the men of the world, the men and women of the world didn't understand. He was ushering in the spiritual kingdom. Not the kingdom that the Jews wanted, where the, the, this one would come through the lineage of David, would sit on his throne and would rule Israel again and put down the other nations of the world in an earthly sense. Jesus came and built that spiritual kingdom, which will put down all the nations in the world and survive forever. So we put our stock in God, and not in a man. As a brief recap, the benefits of a small church, you know, we have a strong sense of family. We know each other well, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. We know each other well. There's less chance that we'll neglect each other. And there's greater opportunity that we have for personal growth. We're involved in the functions of this church. If something's going to get done, it's going to be one of us that gets it done, right? We have the opportunities to grow. Think of it that way. And don't be discouraged by our few in number, but be encouraged by the opportunity, men, that we have to, to, to do the things of worship and to teach Bible classes, and ladies too. We have children here time to time. There's opportunities to teach, and there's younger women to teach. Plenty of opportunities for men and women, even in a small congregation. But let's be aware also of the challenges. We can become discouraged. There's lots of reasons why um, we can look around and see the small number and be discouraged by that, but let's not. Let's be encouraged by the opportunities that God has given us here in this place in this time. And there's that tendency towards becoming complacent and becoming stagnant. Let's make sure we're not doing that. Let's make sure we're always moving forward, always growing in our faith, and hopefully in our number as well. And let's not make the mistake of following after a dynamic personality. I don't think you'll have that problem with me, right? I'm not that dynamic personality that you're going to follow after. But I hope you will hear the words that I have to say and the teachings that we engage in because that is my charge to bring to you is the word of God and to point you in his direction and make sure that you are abiding by his will and doing what he wants you to do and not following after a man or a group of men. So what we need to understand is that we don't need to grow weary in doing good. Whatever our numbers are, whatever our station in life is, whatever is going on in our lives at the time, we have to keep moving forward and not grow weary. Now that's our charge. It's to keep doing the things that we need to be doing, to keep seeding and watering, and let God provide the increase. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to um, become one. Be a part of the kingdom. Be a part of the body of the Lord. To be able to enjoy the benefits of, uh, of a citizen of the kingdom. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. And that, in that if you are a child of God and you've, and you've stumbled, you've uh, become discouraged, you feel like you're stagnating in your service to God, I encourage you to, um, to refresh yourself. 
easiest way to do that is to pick up your Bible and read. Just open it and read. A lot of people say, well, I, I, I'm so, um, you know, overwhelmed sometimes by looking at the Bible and all the, the books and the different things there. Just pick a point and read. And then that's going to lead you to, oh, I can read this over here. And then that will lead you to this over here. God's word is very powerful. Let it be powerful and active in your life. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.